0: I promised him. Of course, I didn't know it was going to take this long. I said, I'll be there when they electrocute you, buddy.
1: He just looked and coming. Kind
0: of, <laughs> he just <laughs> grinned at you? Yeah, he wasn't a bit worried about it.
1: That was retired Detective Rocky Harris talking to me about his last conversation with convicted child killer James Duckett, who has spent the last 30 years on death row for the killing of 11-year-old Teresa Maccabee. In Lake County. That story is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the latest update in a homicide case I first profiled on this podcast in December, the 2000 slang of Michael Williams, who originally was reported missing in Lake Seminole in Jackson County. Williams' wife, Denise, was indicted last week by a grand jury on a charge of first-degree murder in connection with her husband's death. Authorities said Denise Williams conspired with Brian Winchester, who fatally shot Michael Williams. Denise Williams got $1.7 million in a life insurance settlement following her husband's death. My special guest for that segment will be Tallahassee Democrat News Director Jennifer Portman, who has been covering this story for more than a decade. Later... I'll profile the 1987 slang of an 11-year-old girl whose body was found in a lake in Mascot, a rural town about 35 miles east of Orlando. Less than six months after the girl's death, a Lake County grand jury indicted Mascot Police Officer James Duckett on murder and rape charges. Duckett was convicted the following year and has been sitting on death row for the past 30 years. My special guest for that segment will be former prosecutor Steve Herm and retired Lake County Sheriff's Detective Rocky Harris. Coming up, the shocking death of a Highlands County Sheriff's deputy who was gunned down last week after he responded to a call about a cat being shot in Lake Placid.
2: Know he's watching over us right now keeping a hand on all our shoulders to help us deal with this
1: that was highlands county sheriff's lieutenant chris smith talking last week to nbc2 news in fort myers about his friend deputy william gentry who was gunned down while on duty may 6th in lake placid The 40-year-old Gentry, a field training officer and detective for the sheriff's office, died at Lee Memorial Hospital in Fort Myers the afternoon of May 7th. Authorities say he was killed by 69-year-old Joseph Edward Ables. Gentry was responding to the subdivision of Placid Lakes just before sundown following a call about a fatally wounded cat. Deputies said Abels had shot the cat, which had belonged to one of his neighbors. Lake Placid is located in south-central Florida, about 70 miles northeast of Fort Myers. The Highlands News Sun reported that the investigation into the shooting is still open. Detectives were unsure of the suspect's motive in shooting Gentry, and as of last week, they were still determining whether Gentry even had an opportunity to return fire. Ables is a convicted felon, so he was not legally permitted to be in possession of a firearm. Neighbors, however, knew he had them in the house. The News Sun reported that he has a long criminal record dating back to 1983 when he was arrested on the campus of the University of Florida in Gainesville for aggravated battery. Ables has been arrested several more times across Florida, from St. Pete Beach to South Miami. His second-to-last arrest was in 2015. He was convicted of committing battery against a person 65 years or older. He was still serving probation for that conviction when he was arrested on his murder charge. News reports also stated that Gentry knew about Abel's criminal history when he went to his door the night he was shot. The neighbor who owned the cat told the new son that she saw the animal spinning around on the ground in her yard. She picked up the cat and it died in her arms. Her son called 911 and she knocked on Abel's door to confront him. She asked him whether he was responsible and he denied shooting the cat but still told her he was sorry several times according to the neighbor's account. When Gentry showed up, He took the neighbor's statement at her house and then walked to Abel's home. Moments later, neighbors heard several shots. Gentry had been shot in the head. After it was learned that Gentry had died from his injuries last Monday, Highlands deputies gathered that afternoon outside the sheriff's station where Gentry's patrol car was parked. A wreath was placed over it, and several visitors arrived to pay their respects. Gentry had served eight years with the agency. Lieutenant Smith told NBC2 News that he was Gentry's training officer when Gentry was a rookie. Gentry eventually became one of the agency's training officers.
2: He took our young candidates, or cadets, pardon me, um, brought them up to be experienced deputies, um, and he was doing that last night.
1: Smith was struggling with his emotions throughout the interview. It was clear he had a close relationship with the deputy he had once mentored. You know,
3: to not be there and to not help him, it hurts.
1: News stations across Florida have reported that Gentry saved six lives as an organ donor. At one point during the memorial in front of the sheriff's office, Smith was so consumed with emotion, he laid his head against Gentry's patrol car and began to sob. It's like someone
3: took a baseball bat and knocked me in the gut, and I just, you know, I was bent over and just I couldn't get my breath
1: back. As many times as I thought I was going to get it back, I didn't. Funeral services for Gentry are being held Tuesday at the Highlands News Sun Center in Sebring. Coming up the story about the arrest of a Tallahassee woman accused of killing her first husband while he was on a fishing trip more than 17 years ago. Michael Williams was a 31-year-old husband and father. He had forged a successful career for himself as a real estate appraiser. On the morning of December sixteenth, 2000, He woke up early and drove east to Jackson County for a solo duck hunting trip. He was expected home by noon. He never showed, and he never called. Jennifer Portman is the news director for the Tallahassee Democrat. Here she is talking about the extensive search party, one that was never reported on.
4: They went to conduct a very um, extensive search of the lake involving Florida Department of Fish and Wildlife, uh, Jackson County Law Enforcement. They turned it all over at the lake at the landing. There was no sign of Mike at all. They had his boat. They had his shotgun. They had his duck decoys. But there was absolutely no Mike. Uh, the search went on there at the lake for 44 days, officially, and it was sort of wrapped up in inconclusively that this hunter, Mike Williams, was still missing.
1: The theory that was circulating at the time was that Mike Williams was eaten by alligators. About six months before Williams' death, his best friend, Brian Winchester, helped him write a $1 million insurance policy. The two had known each other since high school. In August 2001, Mike Williams' wife, Denise, convinced a judge to declare his death an accident. She did this, according to Portman, without notifying anyone in her husband's family. That move resulted in her collecting more than $1.7 million in life insurance money from her deceased husband's policy.
4: At the time, his disappearance was never considered suspicious. There was uh, no thought that there was any foul play involved. It was really believed by everyone that it was just an accident. It wouldn't be until later that some of these the facts... Uh, didn't add up and it started to point to the fact that perhaps it wasn't as clear cut as it had been uh, made to appear uh, in the early days.
1: Portman was hired by the Tallahassee Democrat nearly 12 years ago. It wasn't long after she started at the paper that the case of Mike Williams' disappearance grabbed her attention. Her dogged reporting led to many more people becoming aware of it.
4: This was one that was never written about until I wrote about it in 2006. Mike Williams' uh, wife at the time wanted no publicity about this. So we didn't know about it here at the newspaper. I came to the newspaper in 2005, in the fall. Um, In 2006, after I'd only been here about six months, early 2006, in May, uh, his mother took out a paid advertisement in the Tallahassee Democrat, and I was just reading my own paper, and I ran across it, and it was saying, you know, help me find my son. And I couldn't believe that no one had ever written about this before um, it was not even a criminal investigation until four years after the fact I then spent six months six more months talking to everybody I could there's barely any um, paper records of anything because it was considered an accident it wasn't considered a, a you know a criminal investigation of any kind and um, about six months later I was able to publish a series of stories um, that kind of for the first time brought awareness about the case and all the weirdness and inconsistencies and strangeness and suspicions
1: about it. Portman interviewed Cheryl Williams, who described to her a conversation she had with her former daughter-in-law. Denise Williams, who sensed Cheryl's skepticism about the alligator story, warned her that if she sought a criminal investigation into her son's death, she would never see her granddaughter again. Portman reported that when the investigation was opened, Denise Williams made good on her promise. Cheryl Williams no longer has a relationship with her granddaughter. There was another development in all of this. Brian Winchester, Mike Williams' best friend, the one who wrote up his life insurance policy, wound up marrying Mike's widow. Here is Portman discussing the unusual love triangle.
4: So what we know right now from the grand jury's um, indictment this week was that she and Brian conspired to kill Mike, that Brian pulled the trigger and killed him, and that she then helped him cover it up all these years.
1: Brian and Denise Winchester separated in 2012, and she filed for divorce in 2013. Meanwhile, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement kept working on the investigation, but it wasn't getting far. A break in the case came in August 2016, when Brian Winchester was arrested for kidnapping his estranged wife he sneaked into her vehicle without her knowing. While she was driving and talking to her sister on the phone, Winchester climbed over the back seat and snatched the phone out of her hand. He held Denise Williams at gunpoint before eventually letting her go. Denise Williams drove straight to a police station. The news reports at the time stated that Brian Winchester begged his wife not to contact police but it was assumed he meant for her not to turn him in for the armed kidnapping. In reality, according to the Tallahassee Democrat, he was begging his wife not to go to police about Mike Williams' death.
4: That was a kind of the biggest revelation. The case had basically been stone cold for 17 years. And just a couple days after the 17th anniversary of his disappearance, FDLE announced that they had found his body buried in Leon County, which is three counties away from Jackson County, where he was, uh, went missing. And that the, the evidence when they found his body conclusively proved that he had been murdered.
1: Last year, Brian Winchester was sentenced to 20 years after being convicted on kidnapping and armed robbery charges. The 47-year-old is serving his sentence at the Wakulla Correctional Institution in Crawfordville. He is not scheduled to be released until July 2036, at which time he will be 65 years old. But that's only if he isn't charged with Mike Williams' murder. It appears he has been cooperating with authorities. Last December, FDLE announced it had discovered Mike Williams' buried remains. Agents discovered them soon after Winchester was convicted and sentenced.
4: Her attorney, Denise Winchester's attorney, surmises that Brian was among the people that the grand jurors heard from and that he told, you know, it was based on his version of events that she was indicted. Um, Her attorney contends that Brian Winchester is the only one who was involved in Mike Williams' killing and that he's the one that should be charged with murder, but here he is just sitting there in prison now and it's for 20 years. Um, the state attorney here in Tallahassee who's running the case, Jack Campbell, has told me that um, they're going to see where the evidence leads before you know making any determinations if anyone else will be charged and related to the case. You know, he's leaving that door open.
1: The attorney representing Denise Williams suspects that Brian Winchester testified before the grand jury.
4: So they were married, Mike Williams, the deceased, and Denise Williams, who was arrested this week, were, marri- were they were high school sweethearts, and they were uh, married. They were about to celebrate their sixth wedding anniversary the day that he disappeared. It was five years after Mike Williams vanished that she married Brian Winchester, who at the time had been Mike's best friend, and also someone that she had known since preschool.
1: Denise Williams was arrested Tuesday at her office on the Florida State University campus. She remains held without bail at the Leon County Jail. Portman reported this week that there was another unfortunate development during all of this. Mike and Denise Williams' daughter, Ainsley, who was 18 months old when her father died, turned 19 the same day her mother was arrested. Portman reported that law enforcement and prosecutors who worked the case were unaware that the scheduled day of the grand jury coincided with Ainsley's birthday. Portman said the arrest of Denise Williams had always seemed like a long shot.
4: It's been one of those cases that because it is so cold, because there was an absolute lack of any physical evidence, people had suspicions. But in terms of uh, having anything that they could actually act on and use in trial, it just wasn't there. So it really stymied the case for a long, long time. Um, So the fact that there was finally this break was really... uh, pretty incredible. No one uh, thought it was a sure bet that anyone would ever be arrested for murdering Mike Williams.
1: Denise Williams is expected to be tried in Leon County, where her husband's body was buried. She has been charged with conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, first-degree murder, and accessory to first-degree murder. Her next court hearing, during which she will request a bail, is scheduled for May 23rd. Coming up, the story of the 1987 murder of an 11-year-old girl at the hands of a small-town police officer.
0: Last time I saw her, she turned the corner and was headed home. Okay, do you want to know something? Yes, sir. You're not telling me the truth. Yes, sir. No, you're not telling me.
1: Ascot Police Officer James Duckett told Lake County Sheriff's Detectives that he last saw Teresa McAbee walking around the corner from the Circle K convenience store on State Road 50 and head toward her house on South Sunset Avenue. Duckett said he had seen the 11-year-old conversing with an older boy, a migrant worker who was staying in a house near the store. He said they were standing behind the dumpster and he didn't like what he was seeing between them, so he ordered both of them to go home. He wrote down in his report that around 10.30 p.m. on May 11, 1987, he advised the girl to go home. Hours later, he took a missing person report from Dorothy Maccabee, the mother of Teresa Maccabee. He passed around some flyers and then went home when his shift was over. On the morning of May 12th, 33-year-old Jim Clark drove to Knight Lake to do some fishing. He started at a canal that runs into the lake, but wasn't catching anything good. So he headed farther around the lake to a tin shed near a fishing hole. That's where he baited his hook and cast his line into the water. He got a bite on his hook and then he started reeling it in. But it got caught on some weeds. He moved to a clearer area so he could tug his line from a different angle. And that's when he noticed a body lying face down in the water. The girl was wearing jeans and a striped shirt. Her feet were touching the shoreline. It appeared as though the body hadn't been there for long. Clark got back into his vehicle and headed to a local school where he found mascot police chief Mike Brady and told him about the body. The mascot police department had only a half dozen employees and it was ill equipped to handle a murder investigation. So it was kicked over to the Lake County Sheriff's office. Detectives Rocky Harris and Chuck Johnson headed the investigation. I sat down recently with Harris who now runs a pawn shop in Eustis, about 25 miles northeast of Mascot. He talked to me about what caused him to be suspicious of Duckett right from the start.
0: What was unusual about the case, to start with, as a police being around rookies, when something goes down that's important, you can't get, I mean, they're right there, right there with you. And we couldn't hardly get Duckett out. Finally, uh, we asked him to call him out, and then we demanded that he come out, come to the scene so he could help us.
1: Duckett had only been with the Mascot Police Department for about five months. Johnson also thought that Duckett was suspicious. He conveyed those feelings to the lead prosecutor in the case, Steve Herm, who spoke to me on the phone last week.
2: Chuck Johnson said that when he talked to Duckett the day her body was discovered, something about him seemed off. Part of it was that Duckett, when the chief called him and said, you know, we found this little girl's body, Duckett didn't immediately get in the car and come back. He just stayed at home. And he... he, He said that the chief told him when he he asked, should I come down there? The chief said, no, you don't need to come down. Well, Chuck said, and and I agree with this, as a young cop, if I had taken an account of a missing child and then that child's body had been found, wild horses couldn't have kept me away. I mean, I would have gone back there because that would have been, that was my case. And yet Duckett stayed away until he was called a second time and told he needed to come down.
1: Harris worked a combined 16 years in law enforcement in both Virginia and Florida. He handled a number of homicide cases, but this was the only time he ever investigated the death of a child.
0: It was tough in a sense that, you know, it's a child. I had children older than her, and to uh, go to an autopsy, it, it, it was tough. I don't want to do it again.
1: Harris had issues with Chief Brady. The two of them attended the Lake County Votex certification program together, which was the county's equivalent of the police academy. They didn't cross paths much during their careers until Brady was hired as the mascot police chief. Harris never thought Brady had the stomach for police work. He also didn't like the way the chief defended Duckett. But Harris moved forward with the investigation. He spoke to the migrant worker that Teresa was last seen talking to, according to Duckett's statements. It became clear to Harris that the boy had nothing to do with Teresa's murder. An article in the Tampa Tribune, a few months after the slaying stated that detectives had up to 15 persons of interest. They eliminated most of them, but they still had four people in mind as possible suspects. Duckett was one of them. Harris described to me the first interview he had with Duckett, less than 24 hours after Teresa McAbee's murder.
0: I interviewed him later on that day, at night. Uh, very cold-hearted. I mean, just evasive. Uh, there was a lot of things he couldn't explain.
1: As Harris, Johnson, and the evidence tech worked the scene, they noticed a fresh set of tire tracks in the vicinity of the tin shed. It had rained the night before. So the tracks were deep and the tread was easy to see in the mud. A molding was made. It was discovered that the tracks came from a snow tire. Harris couldn't believe anyone in Florida was driving on a set of snow tires. Then he learned something else that floored him. The Goodyear
0: store in Claremont or whatever the store was, they had got eight mud snow tires in. They were shipped out by mistake we do we didn't need mud snow tires in florida so that made us you know real sure that we had the right guys or the right guy because mascot needed eight tires and that was the only eight tires they had that size
1: the mascot police department obtained those snow tires for two of its police cars only one of those cars was on the road the night of teresa's murder the one assigned to Duckett. When detectives asked Duckett whether he had ever been down at that lake that night, he told them he hadn't been. It was a costly lie.
2: But when they asked Duckett about driving down there... He adamantly denied that he had ever driven down there. As a matter of fact, he said the chief doesn't want us driving down there because he's afraid it will damage the cars. The chief denied that. He never said that he had prohibited people from driving down there. But Duckett, I think, realized that if he admitted driving down there, then that might implicate him. Even though, quite honestly, had he said, oh yeah, when I was looking for Teresa, I drove down there because kids hang out there he said later on that kids uh used that as a make-out spot they would go down drink beer and that sort of thing so it just struck us as very odd that he would deny ever going down there to look for her
1: harris made the decision to impound Duckett's car By that time, Brady learned his officer was a suspect. He was confronted with the choice of having him stay on the road or suspend him. Brady, who was under pressure not to stand pat, decided to suspend his police officer. Harris agreed with Herm that if Duckett had admitted to being at the lake, and had he been clever enough to say he was there as part of his regular patrol route, he likely would have been in the clear. There's also the possibility that Teresa Maccabee's murder never would have been solved, had Duckett not behaved so suspiciously.
0: And he just said, I, yeah, I drove around her. You never would have impounded the car? Never would have impounded the car. Uh, Might have been a cold case? It would have been a cold case, because he would have never admitted it.
1: Harris's decision to impound the car resulted in a significant discovery, one that accelerated the investigation and pointed it directly to Duckett. Teresa's fingerprints and palm prints were all over the hood of Duckett's car. The way Teresa's hands were positioned, it appeared she was leaning back on the car with her feet near the front bumper. Duckett's palm prints also were on the hood, And evidence technicians concluded that his hands were positioned in a way that he was on top of her. Detectives and prosecutors determined that Duckett raped the girl on the hood of his car. Here is a clip of Duckett being interviewed by Harris and Johnson. Teresa was
3: sitting on the hood of your car. Yes,
0: sir. She had not been on the hood of my car. Nobody was sitting down at any time over the in my car. Are you telling us that's not her fingerprints? Like I said, she was not sitting on my vehicle. The girl is sitting on your vehicle in a laid-back position. But I'm telling you, the honest God truth, I did not do anything to that girl.
1: Harris hated the man he was seated across from during those interviews. I interviewed a
0: lot of people in my time. And he was probably one of the cold-heartedest persons I've ever interviewed.
1: There were other factors that led investigators to suspect Duckett. An eyewitness, Gwen Gurley said she saw a girl in the passenger seat of Duckett's vehicle the night of Teresa's murder. She said she had dark hair. She saw Duckett make a turn down the road heading toward Knight Lake. Additionally, a pubic hair was found in Teresa's underwear. It was a hair belonging to a white, non-Hispanic male. An FBI analyst, a man by the name of Mike Malone matched that hair sample to Duckett. The embattled police officer went from suspended to being fired in June 1987. In late October, a grand jury convened to hear the evidence against Duckett. It was then that Steve Hearn was assigned to the case.
2: I remember hearing about the case when uh, in the office when it happened and, and read about it in the newspaper, um, the death of Teresa McAbee. But I got involved in the case while the grand jury was in session. And I was actually taking a deposition in one of my own cases. And a knock came at the door, and I was asked to, um, it was another lawyer, and he said, I'm here to sit in for you. You need to go up to the grand jury room. They need you for the Duckett case.
1: It took less than seven months after that indictment to try Duckett, who was convicted one day before the one-year anniversary of Teresa's murder. Duckett was a 30-year-old married father of two boys at the time of his conviction. The trial took 10 days. Jurors recommended the death penalty, and the judge in the case carried out that sentence. All of the evidence I previously mentioned contributed to Duckett's conviction and sentence, as did the testimony of three state witnesses. They were young females who said Duckett had tried to pick them up and tried to have sex with them.
2: One testified that she had engaged in oral sex with him two others that testified, um, and said, these, these are not folks that we tracked down. These, these are folks who contacted us after, you know, there were new, news reports about Duckett uh, leading up to the trial. All of them, though, and this is another feature, they all looked similar. They were all slight of stature. They all looked young, and Teresa actually looked older than 11. And so they, they there was a similarity in that regard as well. One, I remember, said she needed to go to the bathroom and got him to go to a convenience store. Not the Circle K, but a different one. And then she went inside and said she was sick in the bathroom and ended up not getting back in the car with him.
1: On June 30th, 1988, James Aaron Duckett was transferred to death row at Florida State Prison in Rayford. At first, Duckett's wife, Carla, stood by her man. A story in the Orlando Sentinel in June 1988, prior to her husband's formal sentencing, contained the headline, To his sons, he's daddy, not a killer. Carla Duckett said in the article that she believed her husband was innocent and she was devastated at the thought that her sons, who were ages 3 and 5 at the time, would grow up only seeing their father in prison clothes and possibly be without a father by the time they became teenagers. In the article, Carla Duckett said of the jury's recommended death sentence, quote, I didn't think that was appropriate. I'm not a victim. Jimmy's the victim. He's been accused of something he didn't do." Then Carla Duckett got emotional and said, "...I think the saddest thing of all is that somebody else's child is going to die because they got the wrong person." Her loyalty disappeared about a year later. Carla contacted the authorities and gave them a backpack containing a stuffed animal which appeared to have been won at a local county fair. She remembered getting angry at her husband for bringing home only one stuffed toy. They had two sons, and they were certain to fight over it. The stuffed animal and backpack actually belonged to 14-year-old Jennifer Weldon of Lakeland. She had been murdered. Polk County detectives zeroed in on Duckett. The girl's body was found in an area of Fort Meade. She disappeared September 19, 1987. Duckett had already been fired by mascot police by then and had picked up another job working at a nearby phosphate mine. On the night Weldon was suspected of being killed, Duckett showed up late for work, something his boss specifically remembered because Duckett was always so punctual, according to an article in the St. Petersburg Times. Duckett was supposed to have been at the mine to start his shift at 11.30 p.m. He showed up at 1.30 a.m. Duckett, who was questioned after he had already been sent to death row, initially told investigators that he didn't know why he showed up late for work that night after he was pestered he said he had car trouble likely the result of filling his car with bad gasoline according to newspaper reports duckett has had at least three appeals denied by the florida supreme court the latest denied appeal was last year during the course of his longer than anticipated stay on death row Duckett's case has generated some buzz. In 2003, a retired police investigator from Miami was working on a novel. Marshall Frank decided he would write a story in which the protagonist was a death row inmate. He decided to write letters to several death row inmates in the hopes he could find someone willing enough to fill his head with knowledge about life in solitary confinement. A bunch of them wrote back. But one inmate's letter really stuck out to him. It was from James Duckett. He, like the others, was adamant about his innocence. But Duckett struck him as more intelligent and logical than the others. So Frank dug into his file a little bit more. The more Frank read, the more he started to think Duckett was railroaded. In 2014, CNN aired a documentary on the Duckett case as part of its Death Row Stories series. The episode was narrated by Susan Sarandon, a well-known actress who won an Academy Award for her portrayal as a nun in the 1995 drama Dead Man Walking. The episode devoted to Duckett included interviews with Harris, Hearn, and Marshall Frank. Here is Frank talking about how the Duckett case aroused his suspicions.
3: I pulled out all the files, read every report. When I started assembling all the evidence, it's, it's like a mosaic. You get all the, a little, little piece of this tile, a little piece of that tile, little piece
1: of that tile, you put them all together, you get a picture. And the picture was innocent. Frank became so convinced of Duckett's innocence that he called Edna Buchanan. Pulitzer Prize-winning crime reporter at the Miami Herald. Buchanan said on the documentary that she was skeptical at first that a white cop would be wrongly convicted and sentenced to death. If that could happen to anyone, it would likely happen to someone who was poor or a minority. But Frank was persistent, telling Buchanan that he was 115% convinced that Duckett was innocent. Buchanan wound up writing a two-part series in the Herald in 2003, detailing what Frank had shared with her. One of the issues was the pubic hair that was discovered in Teresa's underwear after her body was pulled from the lake. It wasn't so much the hair as it was the FBI analyst who tested it. Mike Malone had come under fire for providing inaccurate testimony in many of the cases he participated in. Frank was convinced that Malone's involvement tainted the state's case against Duckett. He wasn't the only one who felt that way. Duckett's appellate attorney for years has been Beth Wells. She, too was interviewed in the CNN documentary here she is addressing Malone's reputation as a hair fiber analyst
4: over the years Mike Malone in many cases has given evidence that through DNA testing we've discovered is just simply incorrect recently the FBI hired an independent expert to re-examine Mike Malone's testimony in all these cases because they're concerned that he's exaggerating
1: There was another aspect of the state's case sticking in Frank's craw, the testimony of Gwen Gurley, the young woman who told authorities she saw a brunette female in Duckett's patrol vehicle the night of Teresa's murder. Gurley has a long criminal history. She was sitting in the Leesburg Jail when she heard about the Duckett case and told a jail guard that she had information about it. Then she became a witness for the prosecution. Post-trial, she changed her story. Then years later, she changed it back. At one point, during a post-trial hearing, she refused to answer questions on the stand, pleading the fifth to avoid incriminating herself. She had been warned that if she gave testimony in that hearing that contradicted previous sworn testimony, she would be opening herself up to a perjury charge. The judge in that case said Gurley's statements were not credible. Even still, he upheld the conviction. Frank, however, couldn't get over Gurley's flip-flopping. Frank also questioned the tire track evidence. He wasn't as convinced as the detectives that such a tire would be so rare in Florida. There was also one other issue at play. Duckett's spiral notebook. He kept a journal of every stop he made during his shift. His notebook was confiscated when his car was impounded. He told Frank that his notebook specifically stated that he was at the Jiffy Stop, another convenience store in Mascot, during the moments Teresa was being murdered. He said he went to that Jiffy Stop because he was called there. The Death Row Stories episode also featured an interview with the inmate himself james duckett here he is talking about that notebook
2: the notebook has her
1: information in it that i wrote down that night when they took the notebook when they impounded the patrol car. The notebooks got Teresa's information that I wrote down at
2: 10.30 that night, and then at 11 o'clock, I was at the Jiffy store. How can you be assaulting Teresa and being on a well-being check at the same time? They could have went and spoke to the clerk and, and confirmed that.
1: Frank wanted to get his hands on that notebook. He felt it was the key to bringing the case back in front of a trial jury. Duckett's attorney, Beth Wells, had access to it and faxed a copy of the page that included Duckett's entry about being at the Jiffy Stop. The moment he looked at it, Frank knew something wasn't right. Every other entry was in chronological order, except for the Jiffy Stop entry. It looked like Duckett had put it there to cover his tracks. Additionally, Frank learned that other girls had come forward with allegations that Duckett had either tried to have sex with them or did have sex with them. Frank had only communicated with Duckett through letters and phone calls. It was time for him to head down from his home in the Great Smoky Mountains in North Carolina to Rayford, Florida. He came face to face with Duckett. He first asked him about the other girls, particularly the three who testified at his trial. Duckett said they all lied. Frank didn't like that answer. It may have been possible for one to lie, but for three women to come forward independently from each other and testify under oath that Duckett had come on to them, it seemed extremely unlikely they would all be lying. Even still, That didn't automatically make Duckett a murderer. Then it came time for Frank to address the entry in the notebook. His questions to Duckett was whether he had ever mentioned to detectives his stated alibi. That he was at the Jiffy Stop at the time of the murder and not anywhere near the Circle K or Night Lake. Again, Duckett gave Frank the wrong answer.
2: I didn't even think about it. You know, as far as being an alibi, or, or I never even thought about the notebook during trial. Never even dawned on me.
1: Frank's opinion of Duggett changed in an instant. The
3: blood seeped from my head. I felt cold. Someone's questioning you, and you have an alibi for where you were at the time of a murder somewhere, and you don't tell the authorities that alibi. That's for a reason, and the reason's got to be that there is no alibi. I I knew then um, this was a guilty man.
1: Frank realized that he had publicly defended a murderer he mistakenly thought was innocent. Then came the revelation that Duckett was maybe a double murderer. He got a call from somebody telling him about the slaying of Jennifer Weldon in Fort Meade.
3: Someone told me that James Duckett was being investigated by another agency. So I go to the Polk County Sheriff's Department and talk to the detectives. They allowed me to read the uh, significant reports, and the more they talked to me, the more I began to think, "Oh, here he may have killed another
1: child." Frank was embarrassed, but Edna Buchanan was incensed. She said she paid dearly for the blind trust she put and Marshall Frank.
4: I loved the Herald.
3: My entire career, I never had a retraction. I was always credible.
1: And to have the last story that I wrote for the Herald be a piece of dreck because Marshall Frank was careless with my reputation, with his reputation. So I got burned on that one. Throughout the Death Row Stories episode, even after Frank disclosed that he believed Duckett was a murderer, he still contended, that the evidence used against him at trial was shoddy and he shouldn't have been convicted.
3: From a legal point of view, he really should never have been convicted. It's a good thing that he was because there'd probably be other dead kids out there.
1: Frank pointed to Gurley's testimony. He referred to the pubic hair that Malone said came from Duckett. During his research into Duckett's case, Frank apparently never made a call to Rocky Harris. Frank had so many doubts about the evidence, why not reach out to the man who obtained it?
0: No. He never reached out to you? I don't ever recall having a conversation with him whatsoever. I'm not saying I didn't, but I don't recall ever talking to him. He mainly was dealing with Duckett and what Duckett was telling him.
1: Frank never made a call to Steve Hearn either.
2: I was there. I know what was presented. I know what the evidence showed and you know he can think that there was a wrongful conviction i just don't believe it I, I have not lost one second of sleep or peace of mind over this case at all i'm convinced absolutely that the right person was convicted that the one who can who uh, raped strangled and killed Teresa McAfee, is um, sitting on death row for that.
1: Both men also said they never heard from Edna Buchanan, who wrote two stories about the case. Herm also addressed the Gwyn Gurley controversy with me.
2: Yeah, well, uh, Gwen has told so many things so many times. I don't know whether I can say I believe her now. I believed her at the time. Gwen was in the Leesburg City Jail. At the time, we still had a city jail then. And when Duckett was indicted, she contacted one of the, the corrections officers and said, I know something about that case. So... We didn't go to her, she came to us, she didn't get any kind of a deal. Gwen then changed her story, said that Rocky and I and maybe others had threatened her and so forth. That's absolute nonsense. I know exactly what I said to Gwen Gurley each time, and just the same as I said to every witness in every case I ever prosecuted, and that was, what I want you to do is tell the truth. There were no threats made. She was adamant that she saw Duckett with a small person, in the car with him now if she had wanted to lie and if we were going to have her lie we would have had her be able to identify teresa in the car Um, so there was no no manipulation or coercion or suggestion to glenn curley as to what she should testify to none
1: Gurley also was interviewed for Death Row Stories. The story she gave to producers in 2014 was that she did, in fact, see a girl in the passenger seat in Duckett's police cruiser. Rocky Harris talked to me about Mike Malone, the FBI analyst who tested the pubic hair. And
0: the question comes about the validity of this FBI agent. Well, I think he was totally right on this case. And the reason I think he was totally right is because the defense hired a doctor Forster, who teaches the FBI and the other police and agencies about identification on car. Well, just for trial, Doctor Forster called us or called the state attorney's office and said he's withdrawing from the case. And after the case is over, contact him. In other words, he found more than I assumed. That's what he meant when he said contact us. And I have some more to tell you. And of course, that's a summation on our part. Why else would he withdraw?
1: Other than flubbing the doctor's name, Harris's memory almost completely matches Herm's memory of what had transpired shortly before trial.
2: Now, I never saw his report, but he didn't testify at trial for the defense. And when I called Dr. DeForest the day we were starting trial. I said, uh, I'd just like to know if you're coming to testify what your finding was. And he said, I'm not gonna be testifying. And I said, well, can you tell me what your finding was? He said, no, I can't tell you directly, but the fact that I'm not testifying should suggest it to you. So obviously that never went to the jury, but based on what he told me, I think the DeForest found the same thing that Malone did.
1: Frank also said in his CNN interview that Teresa had been known to wear her mother's panties, suggesting that maybe the hair that was found belonged to a man that Teresa's mother had relations with. Herm, who had access to every piece of evidence and every page of every report ever written in connection with this case, told me that he had never heard that about Teresa. An October 2017 column written by Lauren Ritchie of the Orlando Sentinel, addressed the pubic hair. She also stated in her piece that a now-dried vaginal swab containing semen was recovered. DNA testing for semen wasn't commonplace in the late 80s, but it could be done now. Ritchie pointed out that the state has declined to test the samples, but in a surprising twist, Duckett has refused DNA testing too. All along, he has argued that the pubic hair wasn't his, but now he seems unwilling to prove it. Ritchie ended her column with this sentence. This seems like a no-brainer for an innocent defendant. Otherwise, one can only conclude that prosecutors have the right man. Herm still believes, with 100% certainty, that he successfully prosecuted Teresa's killer. Duckett's refusal to have the testing done reaffirms this belief.
2: That's why Duckett doesn't want the DNA analysis done now, because it would demonstrate conclusively. Basically, it would say it was his hair and her panties, and then the question is, how did it get there?
1: Rocky Harris brought up to me Duckett's pattern of lecherous behavior toward girls. He couldn't believe that a police officer while on duty would solicit sex from girls standing in front of a gas station.
0: Just the mere fact that he was a cop and he committed a crime like this while on duty, that tarnishes us at all. People, you know, would be apprehensive about being around cops. Oh, it's it's sickening. It really is. I mean, it's uh, it's probably a long time for the kids around there to trust another cop.
1: Harris also pointed out there were many girls who came forward to talk about Duckett's appetite for young girls, not just the three who testified at his trial. It's the first time I've ever
0: been involved with a a cop in this type of a case. But when we got to talking about talking to the girls around there, the things that he'd pull up and ask them for sex and some of them did and some of them didn't uh, oh, how many
1: girls we talked to and he didn't know them. okay in that documentary there were uh, I believe three different girls who came forward with stories of mm-hmm. him molesting them so these were these were girls who were not willing participants no but you're saying that there were some who were willing yep he did pick up some girls yes he did underage Yes. Herm goes back to Duckett's behavior during his shift the night of May 11th, 1987, and into the following morning. After he took the missing persons report from Teresa's mother, Duckett was ordered to pass around flyers, which he did, and pass them around to various convenience stores. But when he got to the Circle K, where he had picked up Teresa, he told the clerk not to post it he would come back and give her a better flyer to post. He never came back. Additionally, while he was supposed to have been searching for Teresa,
2: he wasn't. Also, I think it's telling that after he took the report of Teresa missing and he had called the chief, And the chief told him, uh, you beat the bushes for that girl. Well, Duckett went out and started to run radar on Highway 50, and he wrote two tickets in the middle of the night. So he wasn't beating the bushes because he knew where she was. And that's why he went ahead and and ran radar.
1: Herm shared with me a moment-by-moment account of what happened from the time Teresa's mother, Dorothy Maccabee, realized her daughter was missing and started searching for her to the time she finally got a hold of an on-duty police officer to report her missing. She had to go to a neighboring town to do so.
2: When Teresa's mom, Dorothy, was trying to find the mascot police officer and you know if you've been to mascot it's not very big. So when Teresa didn't come home, Dorothy was out looking for her and as she was driving around the town looking for her, she also couldn't find the mascot police officer. So she drove to the next town over, Groveland, and she talked to a police officer there and that police officer got on the radio and called for Duckett. Duckett did not respond immediately. When he did respond, it was a weak signal response, suggesting to me that he was responding on his handset, his handheld radio. The Groveland officer said there's somebody here who wants to report a child missing and then there was a delay i want to say of 40 to 45 seconds and then duckett responded again this time on a much stronger signal suggesting he was in his car and what i believe happened is that's when he was getting rid of the body and the reason i mean he was a strong guy The reason her body was not thrown further out into the water, I think that's when that call came in. And he initially responded on his handheld, when he was down near the water and then he made his way back up the bank from the lake to his car and his second response was uh, from the car. That also lines up with the testimony of the Groveland officer and Mrs. McAbee with regard to the direction Duckett's car came from. It would suggest he was coming from Night Lake, not where he said he came from. So I think he had just come from killing her daughter and and dumping her in the lake when he came to meet her at the Groveland Police Department.
1: Herm is now the director of the Policing Research and Policy Institute at Florida State University. His job took him to one very strange place recently.
2: I actually saw him last month. I was uh, at Florida State Prison, one of the projects we're working on here at the uh, university has to do with restrictive housing, and we were at Florida State Prison to talk to some staff members and conduct a focus group and that sort of thing, and, and they gave us a tour, and part of the tour included a walk down Death Row, and it happened to be the uh, side of Death Row there at Florida State Prison where Duckett's cell is, and Duckett was sitting out front, and the guy who was giving us the tour, who knows him well, actually conversed with him. To my knowledge, Duckett didn't recognize me. Other than, you know, seeing his picture and and seeing him on the uh, Death Row Stories documentary, I wouldn't have recognized him because he certainly doesn't look anything like he did 30 years ago.
1: Herm told me that he's not a zealot when it comes to capital punishment. Far from it. But he has no qualms with Duckett being put to death.
2: I will say this, that I I think the death penalty has been overused. I don't have any question that in the past, in this country, people who were, in fact, innocent have been executed. But I will say this, if the death penalty was appropriate for only one case, it would be Jim Duckett's case. For a person who represents the enforcement of the law, A person that kids are taught, you know, if you're ever in trouble, if you need help, go find a policeman. Mr. Rogers used to say, look for the helpers and policemen. And I was a policeman. I mean, I started because I wanted to be a helper for that person. You know, a person in that uniform, given that trust, to betray that trust in such a horrific way. I mean, I think I said during the uh, Death Row Stories interview that that little girl died in the dark, alone, with somebody that she thought would protect her. And I cannot think of anything more horrible. So if the death penalty was ever appropriate for anything it's appropriate for him...
1: Duckett, who is now 60 years old, still maintains his innocence. He said this to Death Row Stories.
2: Grant a new trial. I'm not asking to walk out the door. Grant me a new trial. Let's put everything on the table and do it right and see what happens.
1: On the same program, Dorothy Maccabee addressed the numerous appeals and the unexpectedly long wait for justice for her daughter's killer. She sounded like she was still overwhelmed with grief.
0: I just want justice through my daughter. That's what I want. And in 26 years, I'm tired. I don't think I'll ever have closure because he's not going to admit it.
1: Duckett has not been charged in Jennifer Weldon's murder. But authorities have said that if Duckett's conviction for the Maccabee murder is overturned, they will pursue charges in the Weldon murder. As of today, no execution date has been scheduled for Duckett. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week when I will discuss the rampage of Hank Earl Carr who on May 19, 1998, shot a four-year-old boy and later killed two Tampa police detectives and a Florida trooper before taking his own life inside a Brooksville-area gas station. Two former Tampa Tribune reporters will be among my special guests. Join us then.
3: Find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news JRNL.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona
4: Beach News Journal.